Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready for a different kind of Vegas experience with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. We all know people that love their favorite rock groups and so forth, and they usually had a hit record or something. But there was something about the Grateful Dead that was really different than the other bands out there. And we've got a fantastic book out now called So Many Roads. It's written by David Brown. You know him. He's a contributing editor at Rolling Stone. has been following them for years. David, welcome. What was it about the Grateful Dead? They they were so different, weren't they, than, than anybody else out there at the time? They were different in so many ways. I mean, no one sounded like them back in the 60s. Uh, You know, the way they improvised and, and, you know, the way they they included country and rock and jazz and bluegrass. I mean, all kinds of elements into their sound. No one sounded like it then. No one sounded like it now. This was a group that never repeated itself on stage from night to night. They changed their sets. You never quite knew what was happening. This was a group that... From the early days, as I learned in my research, fostered a connection with their fan base uh, in ways that was sort of mind-boggling for the time. You know, mailing out newsletters that they wrote themselves to their fans in the early '70s. I mean, no one was doing that. <laughs> yeah, they, they were a little ahead of their time. <laughs> they were totally ahead. I mean, what they were doing was basically like early social media in a way, and and fostering that direct connection. They later in the '80s they started their own ticket office. So you could just write to them directly and get tickets and, and bypass, you know, Ticketmaster and all that stuff. And that that fostered an incredible bond and, and between the musicians and the fan base that is very rare. I mean, it, you know, there are a lot of beloved bands out there, like you said, but, but you know, there, there's, an, there's an affection and attachment there that has really been unsurpassed. Even, even 20 years now, after Jerry Garcia's died, it's still there. What I find interesting about, you know, even when Jerry Garcia was still alive and the way they ran it, you know, you have this idea of this uh, drugged up band that, you know, shows up when they want. And they weren't, from what I understand, uh, I've talked to some people, they say that, you know, they rehearsed regularly, they always showed up. They didn't do stuff like what you see Axl Rose do, for example, like that. They were serious about the music, and that was another reason why the fans uh, loved them, because they could always depend on them. They, they did. That's true. Uh, they absolutely were serious about, um, about putting on good shows, putting on long shows. Like I said, they changing. The, it wasn't a rote thing. I mean, they had their rote nights like every band, but that's one of the reasons that um, starting in the 70s, and I would hear this from promoters, they noticed this odd thing happening, which was that, say, that they would, so say the Dead would play three nights at whatever, some venue in New York City or wherever, wherever. Uh, the same fans would buy tickets for every night. <laughs> yeah. And 
promos are like, w- w- wait a minute, like you, you go once and that's fine. But like you know, but in this, in this case, you never you know you never knew what was going to happen from night to night. They might do this one rare song that one night that they might not do the next night, and and fans would want to see every show. And it was sort of uh, a mind blowing experience. An example, and that's an example of how they did take it seriously. Um, Jerry Garcia, in particular, I mean, as I learned from interviewing people, was was very like laser focused on, especially when you know before he had his his drug problems, but really focused on the sound of the band and making sure they were tight and successful. And and he would get up at dawn and start practicing scales on his guitars. Anyone who's been around musicians, the musicians do not get up at dawn. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's after lunch is usually the schedule, you know. Um, But he was very serious about wanting to be a great musician, wanting his band to be successful uh, on their own terms, of course. Um, And that, yeah, that absolutely extended. And and they were also, um, I was reminded again during my research, this was a band that, you know, didn't sort of quote-unquote sell out. You know, like they, you never yeah. heard their songs. To this day, you never hear their songs in commercials. Like they always, they had, they had these rules. You know, we, we don't want to cheapen what we do. Um, Jerry did sell some ties, and there were, there were a few things like that. But for the most part, they really adhered to that, and they were, they, they had an uncompromising stance that I think really um, appealed to a lot of people back then, and and, and in retrospect, seems even more mind-boggling <laughs> at well, a time I- when. People are more than happy to sell their songs in whatever commercial they want, you know. Right, right. Well, whether you're a dead fan or not, i got to say So Many Roads is a book that has a different feel than your typical rock book. And that's what I really loved about it because you got to feel about what these guys were about. I mean, it's not just uh, you know what songs they sang or what have you, but really – they were part of the culture, weren't they? I mean, particularly when you think about a San Francisco rock, that really was the epitome of what we think of as the San Francisco scene of the 60s and 70s and, and on to 2000. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that occurred to me in, in doing the book, too, is that they they mirrored their times in more ways than I even realized. You know, they were definitely mirrored the 60s, and especially the Haight-Ashbury and that whole sound. You know, in the 70s, they became a little bit more corporate. You know, they had their own, like, record company and their own sound system. And that was, uh, that very much was in tune with the times. Now, rock became big business. And, and even when they came back with Touch of Grey in 87, their, big, their, their one big hit and their sort of their, their mainstream pop hit and all that, um, they had sort of got their act together, more or less, in terms of excesses and stuff. Jerry had had a coma, a diabetic coma the year before. He came back strong. And even that reflected a moment there, like in the late 80s, when a lot of mid-60s or 60s rock stars were kind of, you know, trying to clean up and get their act together. You know, yeah. remember, like, Steve Winwood had to come back. He suddenly looked like a GQ model. <laughs> and, like, Glenn Fry was doing ads for gyms. I forget what that gym was, but he was posing with his biceps. You know? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Whole, whole bi- there was a whole thing happening at that time where rock stars were like, no, we're not. It's actually a badge of honor that we're survivors, and we've survived. And I think the dead tapped into that as well at that moment. Well, you know, on the touch of gray, I thought it was so great because they finally got this big hit. Not that they were ever trying to get this big, huge seller, but it was right. one that you never felt like they were selling out of that song either. It was a great song, and it kind of really told the story of what was happening to them. Right, it did, and it, it's it's funny in that it uh, that was a song that had been kicking around for years too, and you know uh, one of the friends of the band told me that when they were working up in the studio, Jerry was like, "Oh, that's 
that's not no, no one's going to care about this. I mean, this little, the lyrics are too personal. You know, they they were written after an all night cocaine binge. <laughs> the lyrics, and that's what yeah. that's really about. That feeling of like, you know, you wake up the next morning and you you, you don't feel so good. Uh, although it's it's you know you wouldn't necessarily it's not literal in the song like that. But um, but it was sort of this accidental thing. It was just a song that uh, they had been playing for years. They felt comfortable doing it. It was sort of uh, it was interesting too because um, they had tried so many years before that to have a hit single by working with all these fancy producers, and that's the first record they they kind of did themselves. Yeah, and I think and and they were just like, well, you know, let's just let's just wing it. Let's just see how we how how we would do this, and uh, it was this total weird fluke, left field hit in so many ways, from the lyrics to how they recorded it. But you know. That's sort of the magic of pop music. You never know what's going to connect at any, any moment. You know. What made you decide to tell the story the way you did? I thought it was interesting where each chapter is around a particular time, and you, you know, and it really yeah. brings the story together. What, what gave you the idea to do that? Well, you know, I think one of the big challenges of writing a book about the dead, especially now, there's been so much written about them, is what, what can you bring to the story that's new? And I thought it would be interesting to approach the book almost as if it were a novel, but, but with facts and research and interviews, uh, in the sense that these, are such, these guys are such colorful characters, such strong personalities, uh, and, the, and the settings that they found themselves in were equally you know, colorful, whether it was getting busted in their house, uh, whether it was you know, backstage in scenes where the road crew is you know, <laughs> pushing people away, or whether it was the night they made the Touch of Grey video and everything that was going on with them at that moment and that, on that stage and they were making their first ever video. And I thought, well, that, I thought that would maybe be an interesting approach to, um, to take a sort of almost, uh, almost a cinematic narrative uh, as opposed to just kind of a straight, you know, encyclopedic historical approach. And I thought that would give, the, give readers maybe a better feel for them as people and, and, and would make it... a uh, almost like a movie in a way is what, yeah. what I really wanted to do. So I'll, I'll leave that to, to people to judge whether I succeeded or not. But but that I thought that would bring something new to the story that that hadn't been done before. Well, it reminded me of the movie Five Hundred Days, where they don't run them particularly in order because you could do that with this. You, you actually could, and, and still know yeah. what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. You know, each chapter is about one like day or maybe a couple of group of days, and within that chapter, I kind of give a little backstory to what happened right before then and sort of try to show why that moment in particular was uh, embodied that moment in time. And, and somebody commented like that the way I kind of go back and forth in time within each chapter, it's almost like a, a dead jam, the way they would go yeah. to the main theme of the song and then wander off and then come back to the theme. And that was... It wasn't planned on my part, but I thought that was a compliment. <laughs> I like that. No, absolutely. And I think what's really interesting is, is the dedication these fans have. And it was a two-way street went back and forth because, you know, I know a lot of people that loved rock and roll, but they could never understand the Grateful Dead. They couldn't understand the people that went to, you know, it's like you said right. before, going to three concerts. It really was sort of a really unique uh, relationship. It, it really was, um, and and starting you know, starting really early on, they, they um, you know I I think in you know it's interesting I think a lot of fans saw the dead. Uh, there, there's a famous back cover photo uh, of the Oxo Oxo album 
from from 1968, where you see all all the band and their you know friends, family, children, all like sitting in a field, uh, kind of hanging out, and they just look like you. You know, they don't look like rock stars. They look like just a bunch of people you'd like to hang out with, hanging out in the field. This was in a, a ranch in Marin County, and I, I think that image that's become such an iconic image, and I think that really spoke to a lot of people. Now, of course the organization wasn't quite as mellow and laid back <laughs> right, right. as that picture would have it and i repeated it, i you know heard repeated examples of that in my research it was it was a pretty you know hardened tough survival of the fittest world and some people didn't survive who tried to keep up with it and keep up with the lifestyle especially in the keyboard chairs um, yeah but you know a lot of that was sort of that was off, off stage i think the the image that they conveyed and the fans really related to was that very accessible, the, the best sort of communal, friendly hippie vibe, you know, uh, and, and people really responded to that. Do you see anything like that at all today? I mean, I, I hear some people try to compare it to fish, but to me, mm-hmm. it's just a light year's difference, but that's my <laughs> take. <laughs> yeah, um, well, that, that that whole, you know, they they've... The dead begat this whole jam band world that we're seeing, and there are all these festivals, like gathering of the vibes and, and so right. forth, and, and 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 each one of them has multiple nights of bands like Fish, you know, and, and who are all aiming for that sound, um, and and there are there are there are the vendors, you know, like the the dead sort of in a way started that they called it Shakedown Street. It was all the vendors right outside the venues selling food and merchandise and all that stuff, and that that also has been carried on. But I think, you know, I, uh, to me, the big difference is the music. I think the dead um, and Jerry Garcia and his, his long writing, uh, well, uh, sorry, long-time uh, writing partner, Robert Hunter, did most of his songs. They wrote a body of, uh, of songs, a body of work that really has stood the test of time in a way that I think puts them right up there with the great songwriters and songwriting teams in rock history. And there's... Those songs have been now covered by so many acts. Everybody, Elvis Costello to Los Lobos to you know Nora Jones. I mean, I mean, it's an amazing slew of people, including right now uh, a bunch of indie rock bands. You know, like Vampire Weekend and all. Of, they're they're making an album of Grateful Dead covers, um, and I think that to me is one of their most important legacies. And I think some of the bands that have, that have followed in their wake. Eh, I'm not sure if the songs. Yeah, <laughs> quite as memorable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the dead really. I mean, the songbook. There's a reason that Garcia and Hunter were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame just last month. You know, the, 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 they really. You know, they wrote songs rooted in folk and country music with these great evocative lyrics of gamblers and rogues and all kinds of you know oddball characters and uh, very Americana and 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 uh, that's something that again, like no one is really quite uh, rivaled. Yeah. Especially, yeah. especially the other jam bands that have followed them. Now, uh, last question. Working Man's Dead was my particular favorite album. And when I, I give that to people, I go, you know, even if you don't like it, you you got to give it a listen. The lyrics at the time, it was great stuff. And it, they, were, they were singing mm-hmm. about stuff. And I think of what Bill Walton did when he was with the Portland Trailblazers and stuff. I mean, he kind of lived the lifestyle of the Grateful Dead. It was so weird to actually see that. And, and that album was almost a soundtrack to that. That was my first Dead album. Too, yeah, and uh, I, I love it. It's held up so well. I can't believe it's 45 years old. Wow. which is mind-boggling, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that really, you know, that embodied that that moment where they really 
uh, to me, that's when they really started becoming a truly great band because they they didn't just have the musicianship, but the songs on that record, you know, High Time and Casey Jones and and and, and Dire Wolf. I mean, just like one after another, new spoof, new Speedway Boogie, their song about Altima. I mean, just like one great solid song after another, very simply played. But but what was amazing to me as a kid, I mean that was one that was the first record of theirs I got, and then I got American Beauty, yeah. which was the one that came right after that, and it was in a similar vein. And but then just when you think, okay, this is what they're about, you know, they can sing harmonies, they can write these kind of country folk songs. Then you go back to the other records, you see them on stage. That only was the tip of the iceberg. I mean, they yeah. did so many other things. Uh, they would take one of those songs and stretch them out to 15 minutes. They would do, you know, half-hour-long drum improvised <laughs> solos. They would do electronic music yep. segments. They would cover Chuck Berry songs and country songs. And, you know, for a kid like me growing up in New Jersey you know, yep. in the 70s who wasn't exposed to anything other than mainstream rock, because, you know, the, the, the dead, you know, starting with Working Man's, and then that led me into all this other stuff that they... That they that they loved and it it opened my eyes up to so many other kinds of music that I'm not sure I would have been necessarily exposed to. They made country music, for example, palatable yeah. to someone like me. <laughs> yep. I, uh, you know, then I could go from there to Merle Haggard and go, okay, now I get it. You know, but it's true. Uh, I, it's almost like you needed the dead as that as that uh, bridge. Entree. Yeah, exactly. It's an incredible <laughs> book. It's so many roads, uh, David. Uh, you're always writing great stuff. How do we follow you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, Dave, Dave, D-A-V-B-R-O-W-N-E. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I have an author page on Facebook uh, as well. So uh, I, I love getting feedback, especially from deadheads who, uh, who might want to debate one date or another in my book. You know, like, why did you pick that day? Yeah, that's what's <laughs> always, fun about always it. Always open to that kind of feedback. It's a lot of fun. So. And that's why the book uh, is so I'm much out fun. there on the, on the social media world, as they say. Well, we'll be following you. Thanks so much for being with us Great. today, David. Thanks appreciate a lot, it. Steve. Really appreciate it. Please follow Vegas Never Sleeps on all social media platforms, including X, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Maggi reminding you, Vegas Never Sleeps. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a Continuous Glucose Monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-483-7217. 800-483-7217. That's 800-483-7217. 
only Gentle Giants dog food Batman. I'm Burt Ward, Robin from the Batman TV series. I was the caped crusader, and now I'm the canine crusader. After rescuing and feeding 15,500 dogs for 23 years, my wife and I created a natural, low-fat, heart-healthy, made-in-America dog food and special feeding and care program designed to help all dogs live amazingly longer, healthier, happier lives. Our dogs are living as long as 27 healthy active years. Yours can too. That's twice their normal lifespan and triple for some breeds. Would you like your dog to live as long as 27 years and still be active and healthy? Gentle Giants Dog Food is complete nutrition for all dogs and puppies, all ages and sizes, and is different from other dog foods without the greasy coating and high fat content that can shorten your dog's life. Try our Gentle Giants life-enhancing dog food for the longer, healthier, happier life of your dog. Do you have a car sitting around you want to get rid of? Then here's a great idea. Donate your car and help veterans and their families. Yes, one fast call to the Veteran Car Donation Program and we'll come and remove your car for free. Fast, free towing and 24-hour response. You can donate most cars, trucks or SUVs in most conditions. The proceeds raised goes to help active military, veterans and their families. And you get a tax deduction. All you need to do is make this free call. Get rid of that old car and help the vets. We make it easy. Make this free call now and book your fast and easy pickup. Call the Veteran Donation Program now. Donate your car and help veterans and their families. Operators are standing by. Here's the number. 800-932-1176. That's 800-932-1176.